You know how they say that all of our DNA can be found in a single cell? So, like in theory, we can be literally recreated from the tiniest fragments of our being, even after we're gone. So a hair or a nail or whatever contains the recipe for who we are. But I think in the future, if one were to try to recreate me, they wouldn't need a hair or a nail. They would just need this drum fill. This is, of course, the opening to Michael Jackson's Rock With You from his 1979 classic album, Off the Wall. I was three years old when it came out, and by some accounts, I spent the majority of that year dancing to this record. This is my musical DNA. This is where I come from. The whole song is masterful. Michael is at the height of his powers. The production is peak Quincy Jones. Oh, man. But if you strip away everything else and just focus on the drums, you will find that the performance itself is a work of art, a work of perfection, and a work of humanity. It speaks to our better selves, both our highest potential and our most basic nature. It's a thing of balance, of grace, and finesse. And it's also impossible not to shake your butt when you hear it. It's a template for how to play the drums and make them feel good while also totally supporting the song and the singer. It's universal without being generic. It's not cliche or throwback. It's the thing that throwback cliches wish they could be. It is the work of a master. It's one of many, many works by this master. It is the work of drummer John J.R. Robinson. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. J.R. Robinson is one of the most recorded drummers in history. He's played on so many legendary hits. He was known to be Quincy Jones' favorite recording drummer. He's simply been the guy for making records in L.A. for years. Let's take a short journey through some, and really only some, highlights of J.R.'s career. Robinson was born in Creston, Iowa in the 50s. It's real cornfield territory. He made his way east before eventually heading to the west coast where he did most of his work. I'm looking at his discography trying to find a name you haven't heard of, and it's really hard to do. It's just kind of everybody. But I have to tell you that despite having seen John J.R. Robinson listed on countless credits over the years, I never knew anything about him. Who he was, what he was about, I never knew anyone who knew him. He was just kind of a mystery. 
Well, today, my friends, we will unravel the mystery of John J.R. Robinson, and in so doing, learn a little more about ourselves, because chances are he's inside your musical DNA, too. No matter who you are, you did not get this far in your life without hearing at least one record that he's on. And as a matter of fact, you've probably heard, like, hundreds of records he's on. I spoke to JR earlier this summer via Zoom, and then I had a chance to meet him and hear him in person a few weeks later when he played at Birdland in New York. I did a little news piece for WBGO about it in July, which you can hear if you're a patron of mine. But now today I'm here with the full conversation, and it just so happens to coincide with his new release, Vanguards of Groove. It's the debut album by his project, SRT, an organ trio featuring guitarist Andrew Sinewick, Robinson on drums, and Hammond organ player Mitch Town, hence the name SRT. Sinewick, Robinson, Town. The record is funky and old school, it's raw and unpretentious, but if you really want to know what the band is capable of, you have to see them live, which is a bit like stepping into a time machine in the best way. Third-Story.com is the place to sign up, subscribe, and check the archive. Hundreds of deep-diving conversations, including episodes with other drummers like David Garibaldi, Liberty DeVito, Antonio Sanchez, Michael Bland, Dave King, Bill Stewart, Nate Smith, Eric Harlan, Mark Juliana, Casa Overall, Yoke and Rukert, Nate Wood, Louis Cole, Louis Cato, Billy Martin, Tyshawn Sorry, Clyde Stubblefield. And I think I may have left a few out. Check out patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast, where I've been sharing some of the news pieces that I've done for WBGO with my patrons such as the one that I did on JR's show at Birdland, and they're really fun little audio diaries. We are made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about their award-winning content. And finally, come see me play with my band in New York City next month, October 1st at Rizzoli Bookstore in Manhattan and October 12th at Barbès in Brooklyn. Check out the music and say hello. All the details are available at my website, leosidron.com. Here's me and J.R. Robinson talking it down. Hey, my brother. How are you, Leo? Hey, man. Good to see you. Good to meet you. Good to see you. Where are you, by the way? I'm in Brooklyn, New York. I love Brooklyn, and I am in uh, Thousand Oaks, California. Nice. But you know what we have in common, although we came up in slightly different generations, is that we both came out of the Midwest. I'm from Wisconsin. I grew up in Wisconsin. You grew up just- Where? Madison. Well, I'm I'm kind of like, you know, six hours southwest of you in Creston. And what was the world like in Creston, Iowa- for a young in man. my day, yeah, in your day. <laughs> well, first of all, it was analog, and uh, you know there was actually these things called records. There was an unbelievable, great music, music educational program starting out even in grade school, but uh, definitely um, thriving through junior high and high school. I used to, you know, drive my '66 Charger four speed and drag race, and uh, I was a three sport four year letterman. But, you know, it was, I was always a drummer ever since I was a little boy. So it was, I was, I was occupied. I was always working and I was always, uh, had something to do. So consequently probably stayed out of trouble. I was struck when I learned that you were from Iowa, just to think you're associated with all kinds of records and they're not all soul rhythm and blues records and they're not all jazz records, but you certainly made a huge contribution to records that are very soulful and very funky and very pocket oriented. And man, you came out of the cornfields. I mean, you really did not come out of an experience where you would expect that's the guy who played that music. Well, first of all, has anybody been in a cornfield? <laughs> no. I so can't. there's a lot of funky shit going on in a cornfield. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm writing a book yeah. and, you know, in the book, we talk about this sort of thing. It's, yeah. um, I was definitely born with something that I'm incredibly grateful for. Yeah. 
and uh, that is not i'm not totally sure what it is other than uh the time aspect me me having time contemporary time you know in 300 years time may not be as as linear as it is i i don't know but i, I hope not i hope it's still grooving but um i was always attracted to music that had a a swing to it or groove and you know a lot of that is my mother's uh, influence playing me big band records and talking to me about certain players and she had gone to high school with bud shank in, in uh, durham north carolina and she already had her little google eyes over oh saxophone it's so sexy and swinging and but she taught me about the word swing and i, I didn't understand it and just, oh, look at this is when people dance and this is also when drummers play this is kind of the same thing and i married those two and then immediately started listening to these big band drummers and and because uh, that's all there really were and you know if you take a guy like krupa in the late 30s you know he kind of invented four to the floor yeah you know uh, not a ghosting aspect but making it louder uh and and uh, it became music that was not that much different than what happened in the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. so whatever happened in the cornfields i mean a lot of people think oh southwest Iowa was country western music and i go I don't remember listening to one country western song in southwest iowa yeah ever and maybe because i was always directed to big bands and rock and roll in 63 when i get around came out i just wore that single out because it was like the most aggressive beach boy song ever thank god the beatles came and and then I was always a Dave Clark Fiverr Animals fan. I actually liked the Animals. Watch my daddy in bed at Watch his He's been working I started going, wow, this is some different stuff. There's the drummers are playing some really cool shit. Yeah. So I I guess it was just a combination of that. Why I like R and B music? I still don't know if I can answer that other than you know, I got to play basketball with a lot of, a lot yeah. of brothers. Yeah. And um, when I was asked to join Rufus and Shaka Khan, I had already known every single song they ever did. I made it a point to just be aware of that. And I tried to get into the Quincy Jones jazz camp, but it was up in South Dakota and I, it was just too far. I couldn't get there. Mm. I went to these other camps, but I, I can't answer that question. So I understand that your first music school, you went to Missouri for a couple of years? Northwest Missouri State. What was that school? It, it's a small school, like north of Kansas City, about an hour and a half, south of Creston. And uh, my sister had gone to that school. It's a beautiful school. It's educationally based. Yeah. But they had a great musical department, and I needed to go to a first music camp. And so I was still in junior high. And it's like, oh, I'm going away from mommy. Yeah. And I went down there and it was fantastic. And every year after that, I had gone to a music camp. I did a lot of camps before then. I got to Berkeley. I left for Berkeley right out of high school uh, I from see. Iowa and drove to Berkeley and never came back. I went straight through. So and then so you get out there and you're in, you're part of this generation of drummers right in the early 70s. I mean, it, you know, who so who was in your who was there when you were Holy there? Vinny was shit. there. Yeah, drummers. So my first semester, I was not really meeting anybody and I wasn't gigging. And I started then working finally at a club in Chelsea. But um, I then meet Steve Smith mm. and Steve Smith was a year older than me. 
And then the second semester, we were all in the same Gary Chafee uh, independent class, uh, polyrhythmical class. And in that class was uh, Steve Smith, myself, Kenwood Denard, and Vinny would come in, but Vinny never really attended the school. They just let him come in and come to classes. It was really kind of weird. So we were all in this one class together and it was hard. So we do that, but I was always like watching Steve, you know, Steve had a, had a leg up on all the drummers and he'd always play with George Garzone and we'd go watch him. And he and I started hanging and I started getting to know him. And we both were infatuated with Tony Williams. And my second semester, I started studying with Alan Dawson. Yeah. So that was then my direct link with Tony Williams. And I got six months with Alan and Steve and I would drive around in a 68 Camaro and drink beer and, and listen to Tony's ride symbol and just discuss this for hours and, and just have fun. Then he dropped me back off at the dorm until I moved out. And uh, that was kind of it. That, that year of drummers, I think, kind of basically set the bar because all three of us with Steve, me, and Vinny were completely different drummers. Yeah. And, and Kenwood, and I'm still close with Kenwood too. I was going to go to New York and about 75, I was going to move. And, you know, I'm kind of watching Steve Gadd, you know, because we all watch Steve Gadd because he set the bar higher than anybody. And I see that, wow, the sessions, because I was, this, I turned into the session drummer at Berkeley from 74. Uh, I did replace a famous drummer who will go unnamed, who couldn't really play with a click track. Okay. And I became the guy and, so I go, well, I can do that. That's that's really easy. I like doing that too. And maybe I would like to do that. But my my feeling still is to move to New York, you know, work in the studios and play with some really hip cats. Yeah. And, and then I looked at, and it looked like people were not going to New York anymore. And New York looked like I was kind of drying up a little bit and everybody was going to LA. So the point being is that I, I listened to a lot of drummers and I'm listening, what, what are they doing? Why are yeah. they so special? And yeah. what do they have to offer? And yeah. And uh, it's how a lot of us there, I wasn't the only one that was going to New York. Yeah. You know, there was a bunch of us out of our class that were going to go to New York. And then I finally got a break. Tell me the story of your break. It was in 78. And I was in, I had a great band in Boston called Shelter, just an unbelievable band. And it was so good. And, and we played all varieties of great funky music, dance music, great music. And we're touring in Ohio. And we got out of the New England area. And that's kind of the first time I'd ever done that. And we're making some noise. And ironically, and I'm kind of looking at the trades, and Rufus and Shaka Khan is kind of shadowing us in these cities, but in real clubs or yeah. real theaters, real concert halls. We're playing where we are in Cleveland at the Rare Cherry, it was called. Beautiful name. And all of a sudden, I see there's a light board, a computerized light board. It said, welcome, Rufus and Shaka Khan. And I'm like, holy shit. And the old adage about, oh, man, when somebody famous comes in the room, you start tensing up and you're adrenaline and you start overplaying. Well, that always happens to everybody. Well, I didn't allow it to happen that night. You remember thinking, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm not going to let 100%, this happen. 100% I'm not letting this happen. Because, and all of a sudden I'm looking and there were like two sections of this club. There was the disco, yeah. everybody in spandex and whatever the hell they're doing. And then there was the rocks thing with the concert area where we were. And all of a sudden I see the cats from Rufus all coming down and it's just sitting watching us. And Shaka hadn't come in yet. And at the end of the set, uh, Hawk and Bobby come up uh, to the band leader. They go, Hey, can we sit in with your drummer? Hmm. And I just looked at him. I go, yeah, 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 yeah. 
So the next set, we cleared it out. We go, okay, cool. And uh, I already know, knew the music. I knew the music. So you did all Rufus tunes, all, all their tunes. All Rufus tunes. So it's plug and play, baby. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, shock, I kind of staggered away in there. And it was like the next generation. It was the final generation. And we played, played a set or so, set and a half. And uh, it was just uh, higher than shit. We were just so good. And then I hung with the guys till 6 a.m. the next morning and then went and sat in with them at the theater in the round. And then right there, they just took me aside and I felt sorry for their drummer. No kidding. Who is still a friend of mine today. Uh, what do you do? Do you take the gig? They go, do you want to move to Los Angeles? I go, yes. So they go, start packing. So two weeks later, I drove from Boston to Los Angeles and um, you got to just go. You got to go. And so that was the break. Unbelievable. Some part of you understood when they asked to play with you that you knew, I mean, even when they came in the room, you knew if this works out, this could be something. Knowing not to let your playing change, recognizing that you wanted them to hear your best self, the way you play, not change anything, trust that the way you play is good enough. That's a real sense of like self, you know, knowing yourself that, you know, you knew something was happening there when they walked in. Well, there's a reason. I mean, I, I'd had experience before in Boston working with just a beautiful lady named Lynn Stewart. Mm-hmm. I was Joe Hunt's sub. Lynn Stewart is Chick Corea's cousin. Huh. And she was a singer, jazz pianist. And I used to play sub for Joe. I'm a lot younger. And one night, um, it's some beautiful trio stuff. And one night, Chick comes in. I go, oh, fuck, Chick Corea comes in. You know, and this is like Return to Forever Chick. And <laughs> huge, huge chick and peak chick, in my opinion. And I just over, overplayed like a motherfucker. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. and, and I met him at the end and go, you know, I, I'm like trying to sell myself, which is just totally wrong. And I go, one day, yeah. I'm going to play with you. And he goes, one day you will. <laughs> I realized that I was still young yeah, uh, and, and learning. So then this yeah. Rufus thing came and uh, I had learned from that. I read it in some biography of yours that actually athletics was such a dominant part of your life that you had to make a decision at some point if you wanted to pursue being a, an athlete or a musician. You know, we all have these fantasies. You know, I started playing piano at five and drums at seven and you know, turned pro at 10 and always going to jazz camps. But anyway, my 10th grade, I went to Iowa State University in the summer for a summer basketball camp. I continue that through when I went to Berkeley and, you know, Berkeley of course has no athletic department. So I, I went and joined the Huntington YMCA, which was down towards new England conservatory. And, and, you know, got to play with some ex Celtics there and, and had a lot of fun. And then I continued that later when I, uh, you know, moved to in 78 to Los Angeles after joining Rufus and started playing a lot of street ball and hustling and you know, how young people are you, think you're invincible. So I'm going to walk onto the Lakers camp, man. I'm going to walk onto the Lakers camp. And, and I, I had known Norm Nixon uh, through my Glenn Fry connections and, huh. and Kareem. And that didn't help shit. You know, Norm just looked at me and goes, well, you want me to be in your videos too? You know, in other words, you know, stick to what you got. So you, you carried that dream all the way with you to LA. You're working, you're playing on hit records, and you're still thinking, well, maybe there's a shot for me as a basketball player. I was getting better, uh, ironically, after I left high school and uh, I was understanding the game better. So, yes, I was I was carrying that dream. I don't know. Maybe it was just a good way to get out of the house. Yeah. 
you know, and, and then I started hustling basketball at Balboa Park in 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 Encino. And when I first joined Rufus, so we'd get all our tracks done. And so it was like, okay, you're done. What do you want to do? I, well, uh, you want to watch us go plink, 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 or no, I don't. So I went and hustled basketball every day. And that's how I, I made extra money. You know, that actually uh, speaks to a different conversation, which is m- more in line with the sort of session drumming period that you went through. But I feel like over the years, I've heard so many stories, whether it was Bernard Purdy or Jeff Brocaro or, or these players who were really, and, and I'm curious to know about your take on it, really you know, didn't like to play a lot of takes of tunes. Drummers are notorious for wanting to play a couple of them. And once it's right to kind of check out and let the rest of the guitar players do all their overdubs. What has your take been on that in terms of just studio etiquette and, you know, how many takes you like to do it? That's a a very interesting question. And um, all my buddies and Jeff and I were very, very close. I know Jeff would just throw down and give it his all. And basically say, hey, this is the take. Yeah. However, as I learned and had done that, I realized, and I'll give you a couple examples, um, but I realized that that's incredibly selfish Mm. because just because I interpreted the song, which could have been or maybe was the final take, doesn't necessarily mean that the guitar player or the keyboard player or, you know, and, and if we have a live vocalist going on, he or she has probably no clue what's going on until later so it's incredibly selfish and that was actually pointed out to me during several several worlds you know one being when working with the great dean parks Mm. and dean of course you know is just godfather of the la music industry and uh, just an amazing player and amazing producer dean would just take me aside and say you know of course whether i was going through a divorce and and maybe channeling my anger through the rhythm section he would take me aside and just go you know man you just need to chill out here and and, you know do as many takes as they ask you to do and i'm going okay and then there was the old joke that nile rogers used to say about west coast me east coast nile hey man jr leaves his car running when he does a session you know, that's some fucked up shit, quite frankly. And I don't know how he would know that. So I, I, never, I never did do that. But do you think that the implication is you were so busy at the time that, you know, you might be doing multiple dates in a day or, you know, running from studio to studio? I mean, was that the impression that people had? And, and was that true? Well, the, that latter part of that is definitely true. I mean, you know, the, the 80s and part of the 90s were rocking. I don't know about the New York Cats, but we were going at some time and there were a lot of great drummers in LA still. And there was a lot of just great songwriters and record labels, Mm -hmm. things that were disc jockeys, but I would run three drum sets a day uh, Mm -hmm. several times. So you'd got a 10 AM, let's say at Bryn Burbank, you got to get there at nine, nine 30, get your stuff together, learn the songs, play till one, get in your car, bust your ass and get all the way over to Santa Monica, which going across town in LA is hell. Mm-hmm. Go do that session from two to five and then go, Oh God, I got a six o'clock and it's at, uh, you know, uh, yeah. some big soundstage somewhere like Warner's and you got to come back and do that. And, and Cartage can't really get your first set torn down yet because of setups. So they run, I was running three sets, but let me give you another example of, of yeah. those multiple takes. I got a call in 86. From my buddy, good friend, still to this day, Russ Kunkel. Mm-hmm. And Russ goes, JR, 
man, I, I need you to come in and, and, and spell me on the rest of this Bob Seger record. I go, well, uh, yeah, I'm going out on the road with, I don't know, he's going out with Linda or somebody. And I, I go, okay. And I'd met Bob before through Glenn Fry. And uh, uh, at that, you know, that, that time, my first wife was from Detroit. So mm -hmm. I go, okay, cool. I mean, I'm, I always loved Bob Seger. And so I go in and I meet the Silver Bullet Band. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm hanging out with these cats. And, and I bring up my unbelievable array of old shit, yeah. snare drums, big, deep drums, drums that are, that once you tune them low, you don't want to touch them. There they are. They're ready for play, you know, lined up like mm -hmm. a military exercise. And I start playing with the cats and everything's gelling great. And, and they have a, a producer named Punch Andrews, who was a fucking asshole. Mm. And Punch, and I mean that in the nicest of not ways, <laughs> because he, he, I respected what he was doing with Bob, but Bob wasn't saying anything. And, but nor was Bob singing. But we get into take three, take four. I go, hey, guys, wasn't that a really good take? Oh, yeah, that's really great. But we probably have to do some more. And I go, oh. So then I'm dealing with like a 1930 nickel-plated Ludwig that, you know, if you play it, you just can't play it really fat a long time because then you got to change heads. You got to start over. There's an extra 15, 20 minutes. So hey, we get to take eight. And I'm looking, I go, man, that take was smoking. Yeah, it was great. And, and I go, hey, Punch, man, why are we doing so many takes? He goes, we have just begun. Mm. I want to do 25 takes per song. Mm. And I'm going, oh, fuck. I'm thinking I'm in hell. Yeah. And I'm playing. And I go, okay. So I'm trying to now figure out how not to get bored as a drummer with the exact part that I've created seven takes ago, yeah. which yeah. was to me the right one. So that, then I have to parent myself in a sense and cool myself down and, and then figure out how to keep the snares from losing their fatness. And that happened for seven songs. Mm. And Russ, when I saw Russ, I go, you asshole. Yeah. <laughs> you, you were getting out. Of, you were just getting out of Dodge at the right time, weren't you? And he goes, yep. He knew. He <laughs> knew what he was doing. That was the Like a Rock record. It was like, well, it, it was a learning curve. And, and uh, you know, also I, I got to figure out how to tune old Ludwig's deep consistently. Well, that's what I was thinking. What you describe is like, you, you got to find something to focus on 25 takes in. So if you're focusing on making sure that the snare stays in tune, at least you had something to fixate on, you know, for all those takes. Well, and blend and blend with a new rhythm section too, yeah. and and uh, and try not to go in there and beat the shit out of punch. Yeah, which you know I, I did not want to do, but you know you learn from working with these different kinds of producers. You know, like I mean, I, I I've seen a lot of your resume and uh. and think and you know you've interviewed Glenn and yeah uh, yeah, yeah I'd worked 
I'd worked with Glenn and there's just a bunch of guys have different approaches to things. Well, that's, that's a big part of what I wanted to talk to you about. Cause I think it's really interesting when you have a player like you who crosses all of these producers and artists and you know, there's a constant across so many hits. It's you, you played on so many records, but each one of these producers is also known for having their approach. Do you change your approach according to the producer? Do you change anything that you're doing? Or are you kind of walking in and you kind of have the way that you approach playing a tune? How much of an influence does the producer have? That's an incredible question. And I, I don't know if I've asked, been asked that before. Huh. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Um, and they, they could go up to the recent days, but I'm going to give you two from the old days. Working with Quincy, who, of course, is just my, my number one mentor. Yeah. Bruce Swedeen, his right arm. Bruce Swedeen basically was Quincy's right arm co-producer. And there would be different things like, you know, Quincy would basically be listening for musicality, groove, making sure, hey, JR, you're dancing too much, quote, meaning I'm playing too much stuff. Mm -hmm. So simplify. Bruce would come in, I'd come into this a session like in day two of whatever lockout. And there would be an old Atlas mic stand. And on it was a eight by one inch piece of iron mm. that Bruce had threaded and then surrounded by a packing blanket. So the, and, and there it was placed between the right side of the snare mic and my right hi-hats to block out the hi-hat mic going into the snare mic and i'm going oh this is wow what a cool idea bruce and then all of a sudden all right let's start recording and i'm realizing that i'm hitting it every time i'm coming as us right-handed drummers have been learned to play the high on the left you know mm -hmm. even though now it's advanced but so i would hit it and i'm like hey bruce i'm having having trouble you know i have to lift my arm up to play this song he goes just deal with it. That was it. And I'm going, Oh God, you know, and I, I don't see that happening to the guitar player, you know, or anybody else. I, I so there, there was a, uh, an obstacle which didn't change. So, hmm. I mean, is that what was going on on off the wall, for example? I mean, are you yeah. dealing with that on off the wall? Yes, sir. So on and, and the dude most, I think it was mostly the dude though, because he was experimenting with, he was experimenting with getting rid of hi-hat leakage into the snare drum. Did change your playing, do you think, though? I mean, do you think some of those performances were, like, in some ways influenced by having to deal with that I don't, know, I don't know if I thank God or the yeah. ultimate supreme being, but I was able to adjust on the fly yeah. to something and then make it whatever it was my own, Yeah, uh, which was very cool. And it's interesting, like on off the wall, we were, um, I was using an old uh, 75, 22 inch Gretsch set. Yeah. I bought it at E. Wurlitzer's in Boston. And, uh, and I was so sad because I had to get rid of my 1970 Ludwig set. But nevertheless, that's what we do. Bruce wasn't intentionally. There were no tunnels built on the kick drum. He was just miking a drum set yeah. with 87s, and it was the real deal. That was the first time I started to see, though, isolation tactics come. 
So then that that developed more on the dude uh, where we did that. But uh, two other examples of that is when uh, Russ Heidelman started producing Rufus uh, after Quincy. Yeah. And we cut on side four from Stomping at the Savoy, Ain't Nobody. And I went in on Hawk's tune and overdubbed Hawk and Russ and myself all agreed that I'm going to cut that with just kick and snare drum. And so I wrapped a big old towel around my right leg, you know, like all of us did in friggin' marching band and, you know, or however we were doing it to play it without that right hand wouldn't have been as groovy. So I go, okay, I've got to have something going on with the right hand. And so I cut that whole song. It was about, I don't know, six and a half minutes of groove with just kick and snare and then overdubbed that. So then the Hyatt was totally isolated, but the kick or the snare, I used a like a 1982 Yamaha 9-inch custom-built snare drum and tuned it medium. So it was so deep, it still had that fatness to it. Yeah. And if you still hear that, you hear that sound today, it, it still is fatter than anything there is. got through with Russ Tileman with other songs that yeah. I had done with him, for example, in the Winwood record. Yes. He would ask me, John, do you think you should play the whole groove on this first take or piece the groove? And he would honestly give me the ball and I'd go, I think like on higher love, let's just say, yes, I think I should play the kick snare and hat and get that thing done. Let's, let's build the bed and get that done. We'll figure out about high at leakage. We'll get it uh, before we record, but we that's how we, we, we cut that song. This also speaks to just a total awareness of not only the performance, but how big a deal the sounds that you would choose for a particular record or sound would be. The depth of the snare drum, the way you would tune it. And that's a whole other conversation. Like in each case, you're choosing equipment to suit the moment. You know, is that just something that developed over time in the studio, realizing that this gig isn't just how do I play, but it's what does it sound like? What do the drums sound like? And what does the song want these drums to sound like? Yeah, I mean, that evolved and as music evolved. I mean, let's just take a quick look at it. And, and we're obviously in, in my world, you know, my world is 30% jazz yeah. or less. Now it's more with the new SRT band. But uh, you know, coming out of the seventies and you'd listen to seventies pop rock, uh, even R and B, uh, records, uh, the R and B records uh, coming out of the seventies, the drums were a little bit bigger, but you know, if you listen to Eagles records or, or stuff like that, uh, James Taylor records, the drums weren't mixed big. The engineers weren't, they weren't driving the songs via drums. So when the eighties came from 79 on the drums started getting bigger. And that means everything started getting bigger. Hmm. So, so it, it, and we're, we're still in an analog world. Yeah. 
uh, up until, you know, 82, 83. And, you know, so learning how to stretch that, um, mm-hmm. that envelope of volume was a very interesting, uh, when we got into with Quincy, I used to always talk about, cause I always had the fantasy of like Sonny Payne, mm-hmm. Sonny Payne was unbelievably crazy and possibly the best drummer of all time. And I don't like using best because there is no best. Everybody contributes their own way. But Sonny Payne was ridiculous. So I always had this fantasy because when we would put the Quincy big band together from 80, late 80 to 81, 82, uh, I, I said, man, I've got this old Gretsch bebop set. I bought it in uh, 73 and it was just sitting on a shelf and it was exactly what I wanted that walnut bebop that Elvin played. Yeah, and the I'm Elvin going, kid. I, I want that set. I want that set. So that set is still here with me today. I cut Bette Miller's last record with that drum set. Mm. It's just Ridiculous. But I used to say to Quincy, man, let me bring in the bebop set. Let me bring in the bebop set. But Quincy didn't want any bebop mentality on his records. Those were special records, like a Sarah Vaughan record or something. And I was like kind of heartbroken. I go, wait a minute, I got an idea. So I brought it in. I brought the kid in because it was just two Toms and we don't care about Tom. Actually, there were no Tom Phils on that dude record. So if anything, it was overdubbed. Yeah. And I brought it in and I took this 18 inch Bop bass drum, which you know intimately, we all know them. Yes, of course. And it's pretty high pitched and it's booby and blah, 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 blah. I put Remo uh, Mylar heads on it, more pop sound, uh, had my blanket in the middle, an old Rufus sandbag sitting in it, and detuned the shit out of it till it was flapping. And if you listen to the, the bass drum sound on the dude, it sounds like I'm playing a 24. Nobody knew. And is part of the desire to play that smaller kit because you feel that there is a different feel that you can achieve playing with smaller bebop drums? It feels more comfortable. What is it? It's a total different feel. I mean, you know, detuned like that, it's still kind of borders on a 22 or a 24 feel. You know, normally I use a 24. Normally I use a 24 in the studio? You use a 24? 24. Really? Well, I'm a six foot three yeah. and a half guy, so yeah. I, and I got long legs, but... I'm musical director for this guitar center foundation gig coming up here. And, 
and they've got their 50th anniversary set. So I'm going to play that. And that's a 22 and it, it rocks. It's, it's, I guess this, that point in my life, eh, just make sure they're nice and tuned, you yeah. know, but, um, <laughs> when you, you know, in those old trio days in Boston, you know, all I had is nothing but trios and it was just so much fun and yeah. trying to emulate the, the great masters and, and learning from that. And, and, um, you know, cause I studied with Ed Sof and then Alan Dawson. Yes just listening to those guys i want to do that and yeah so yeah when you when you hit the bass drum on a high-pitched bass drum like that or really high-tuned crisp thin-headed drums they bounce back a lot quicker so that now you're getting a lot more things that maybe you weren't aware of uh that you can add to your tool belt yes let's say but you know in in, in, a, in a real world like you know we're coming to new york with srt at birdland and I'm still going to use a six piece set, probably a little bit more Cobham oriented and, and, uh, you know, a little bit fatter, uh, just because of the nature of the groove of that music. Yeah. I know that the idea of time is important to you. And I love what you talk about when you say contemporary time, I think that's a very interesting way of talking about what you have and what it is to play drums in this era or the era, you know, the era that you came through contemporary right. time. Because in fact, it seems like every generation has a slightly different way of feeling things. I mean, I don't know if you've been following this whole a new groove. Jacob Collier, who's also a, a disciple yes. of Quincy's, is very deep into this new feel. It came as a response to some hip-hop producers, but now drummers are playing this way. There's a lilt in the funk now. Yep that if you think about what contemporary time is and that it's fluid and that different groups of people are going to feel a pocket in a different way, then there's actually room to accommodate, I think, all these different feels. And that's why I like when you said contemporary time. I mean, I'm not sure if that's what you meant by it, but that's that's part of what you know, I heard by it. You know, D'Angelo's original music. Exactly. Which to me was maybe the beginning, but that could have been, and probably was, yeah. the producer sliding things. You know, we're making the vocals back 10 milliseconds, yep. which, wait a minute, they're now, and then you listen back and go, wait, I, I have something. Yeah, you know what it's like in the studio, you yeah. know, because I write, I'm a keyboard player, yeah. and and you, you let's say you just come up with something, and yeah. but oh shit, I fucked up in, yeah. in Pro Tools, yeah. and it's not right. It, it, oh wait a minute, it's such a bad mistake. It feels really good. Yep. And and Herbie used to talk about stuff like that when he started getting into electronics, and yeah, it was like uh, if it's maybe broken, it might not need fixing. Yeah. And and sure, like you know, I I still maintain that if the fundamentals aren't right out of the gates then how can you then diverse yeah. to something else it's just like basketball you know how do you get to doing a layup do you go around the guy and come around from a circle and do it no you go it's the quickest point from a to b is a straight line mm -hmm. so and it's the same with drumming and i, I and i'm gonna stand by this until i'm way below the dirt as a north american drummer my right foot is word that's god 
and and wherever that downbeat is is word and whatever happens around that downbeat everybody else has to come and meet that there and so whatever else happens around that is music <laughs> but you've got to have some sort of foundation to just set it's like building a house if you were to build the frame of the house after the foundation's laid ass off you know <laughs> a, a, a centimeter then nothing's going to line up i'm going to stick by my guns on that one there are so many factors that must come into what makes a certain drummer the kind of musician that people want to work with and call when they're going to put a record together or record a song or whatever right and i'm sure you've been asked a million times you know what are the things but i love the distillation of it at a certain point down to if it's one thing it's my right foot it's where my one is and after that we can dress it up in a million costumes but if my downbeat isn't people can't deal with that then there's nothing else to talk about and i wonder how much you think about that just where you feel one as being an important factor of why people you know want to play with you i don't think of that it just is huh. And that's something that, you know, all the years of teaching and clinics and you show up and, and they go, so how, how do you, how, how can I learn groove? How can I learn, how can I learn about keeping the bass drum in perfect time per whatever that metronomic number is, and yet lay your snare drum back three to seven milliseconds. How do I learn that? I go, well, I can explain it to you mathematically. Uh, and then what you have to do is maybe just throw all that out the window and try to figure it out yourself Yeah, because uh, it, it's like you can't explain groove. You know, James Brown, uh, he just did. It just was, you know, and you look at Bernard's groove, Bernard's groove is just unbelievably irreplaceable and one of a kind. It may be a little forward, you know, I don't think those guys played with click tracks, but it was unbelievable. Jeff Picaro's groove was unbelievable and totally unique to him, where his bass drum and snare drum were slightly back, but his bass drum wasn't ever dragging, and his whole thing meshed into uh, this beautiful, beautiful concept. Uh, I mean, I can go through a uh, hundred drummers right now and talk about shit like that. Sure. But if like if you watch the TCM channel and they're showing musicals. And then, but then there's live band playing and it could be the Duke Ellington band or yeah. somebody or whoever's playing behind all these dancers and whatever you're really listening to, they're listening to the drummer's bass drum mm. in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they couldn't mic that shit. Yeah, it was right. just, it was the way it was. It was boomy and dominant. Yeah. That to me still applies to the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, all the way through now. And now if these cats are experimenting with jagged grooves it's going to make dancing jagged which is fine actually it's going to make people go oh this is this is different and yeah. that's kind of how we were hit in the 60s you know a little yeah. bit it was different you know you also happened to history hit you where the click track and having to deal with playing with machines you're that generation that learned how to play live on top of programming what was it like dealing with playing with programming and how did you adjust to it? A precursor story. Rufus was rehearsing at Danny Serafin's house in Westlake Village in 78, 9, and uh, working on a solo record. And there's a knock on the door. And it was Roger Lynn was at the door. 
with a compact computer and a little keyboard and a cassette player and a couple of wires. And we stopped. He goes, hey, kind of went. So Danny and I are like looking at him and he's plugging the shit in and he, he hits on his numerical keyboard and we go, Whoa, Whoa, let's go. And he goes, pop. Yeah. <laughs> like, pop. And I'm going, Oh shit. And Danny and I just looked at each other in, in those days. And then the LM one came out Yeah. and we're not going to really talk about where some of those samples came from. I see. Wow. Oh, and I know a bunch of other drummers. Some are not here with us anymore that uh, may have the same statement. Nevertheless, as that went through the early 80s, Quincy Jones and producers of that ilk, Quincy Below, were not using drum machines, mm. even all the way through um, Thriller. I mean, sure, Steve Picaro used it to write. Then we get into We Are the World. No, we get into Bad. And Quincy, we had a meeting with Quincy, and Quincy goes, um, you know, Prince had already made his resurgence. Yeah. yeah. He goes, JR, can you add a, like an electronic thing to your sound? And huh. I still want you, I go, you still want me to play acoustic drums? So he goes, oh, yeah, I need your acoustic drums. I go, he didn't understand. Yeah. And I had a full uh, multi-track studio at my house in those days. Uh so like the beginning of, uh, I programmed about five or six of those songs starting on an SB12 drum machine. Like, uh, the way you make me feel, is that that one? Yeah. The way you make me feel. So I programmed that and then I brought all these tracks in. We put them down at the end of the, whatever reel that was. And then I had a, a Yamaha drum set in those days with a six foot rack of triggers and bullshit, you know, like a, a, a four at and all these other triggers. And then I had a Mac computer on it and I used to carry a 24 channel friggin' Yamaha mixer with me. It was just so overkill. But out of that, I could dial those guys different snare samples, extra kicks. And the, the four at was the closest to not being too late but the rest of the shit was late yeah and and so that's why you hear uh, it's kind of squashy or stuff coming out out of those sounds but the aftermath of when bad came out was then wow this sounds different yeah and that's what quincy wanted quincy wanted it to be because he felt the kids were moving into an electronic ear yeah i was care i was curious about that because i saw that you're listed as playing drums on those tunes and i don't remember that as being a very acoustic sounding drum sound on that record but they were still led by acoustic drums that's the that was the magic of bruce yeah you know i mean we still had all my acoustic tracks yeah but then we had trigger tracks and it depends i mean shit i remember on bad after i'd cut it i it was like and bruce used the you know two inch tape but those yeah. large reels yeah on a on a b machine on an ampex with 16 track heads so i was always the slave machine on analog going to digital on all that record mm. but they didn't want any fills so i'm playing for eight minutes eight minutes i mean it's like talk about the robot in their old days we used to do claps for real like with myself greg filling games and uh, uh lewis johnson or then later lenny castro and because we always take the, the three best clappers and and clap on the earlier records well on this record he goes 
we need to go put some clap. But I go, don't you want to do it our old way? He goes, no. So I had a Simmons clap trap that it had like foam in it from being in a road case for five years. And I pulled it out and I'm just sitting there doing that. With the finger. While Mike, Michael's looking and, I, and I, they didn't give a shit. And I was like, you know, and I, I, I opened up the little gate. So it was like, and that's how that went down on that record. And on the Steve Winwood record, there's programming and you're playing on top of it, right? Isn't there a hybrid between those two on that record? On Higher Love, yeah. Tom Lord Algy, again, another genius. Uh, I cut that with, again, a Yamaha drum set at uh, Unique Studios in New York City. Big, bright, in-your-face drum sound. And, you know, he had layered uh, a snare sample after that on there. And I'm sure I was pro- possibly dilated a little bit, you know. Because depending on, because Steve's track was done with a Fairlight, right, and right. and there was nothing on it. So when I came in, I overdubbed my shit, and then Tommy went to town on it. But it was still basically uh, all me, and and that intro was definitely me as an overdub. So. And did you feel, I mean, you know, I was looking at your discography, 78, 79, there's a few big records, but then you get into 85, 86, 87, you're talking about 25 big records every year, you know? Yeah. I mean, was there a part of you that was going like, this is going to go forever? I mean, when, when it's happening like that, do you realize that that's the peak of it? It's a good question. And, 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 and interestingly, Leo, um, I was asked to go on the road by all these artists I worked for, you know, Seeger wanted me to move to Lake Michigan, join the band. (laughs) Uh, Michael Jackson asked me to go out originally. I think ethnically I was the wrong visual call that that was made clear to me. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, which I don't agree with one bit. Lionel Richie, same thing. Steve Winwood asked me to join the band after 87, but didn't want to pay me very much. Hmm. And in, in reality, I was going to go with Steve because I just adored him and his music still to this day. And matter of fact, he'd call, I'd still, I'd go out with him. I think Steve is just ridiculous. But there were times when I would be on 20% of the Hot 100. And I'm still looking for some of those charts uh, to to show, because we always had them in the Quincy Manus by the Billboard magazine and all that stuff. But I was working so much out of Los Angeles, mostly, that I didn't have to go on the road. And I mean, I was raising two young boys at the time or trying, and I felt that, wow, this is really cool. But your question was, did I feel maybe that was, it was peaking. Yeah. And it was, it was peaking and I knew it. And then sessions started becoming different. And I explained this in the book, you know, just about the evolution of music and grunge and, you know, a, a completely different social distortion, if you might. Sure coin that phrase and yeah. and things that have happened and and you know and songwriters became more they were equally there but they weren't writing as many hit records anymore the record label there's just a lot of variables with as what was happening there was a squeezing of everything and um and it squeezed us all yeah. and i managed I, and i'm very grateful to plow through those obstacles um, 
I, I could see the things on there. You can see the writing on the wall. Yeah. Well, here, listen, I, I, didn't, I haven't brought this up in a while. Uh, and this kind of regresses a bit. We were, I did a lot of bunch of Manhattan transfer records because yeah. I just love, and I know, you know, Janice and, yeah. and this was out to Janice yeah. and um, Tim and I were very close and yeah. I get a call and Tim called me. He's like, yeah, we want you to come, come in and do another record. I go, great. I just love playing with you guys. And I come in there and I think it was Miroslav was the bass player, wow. I think. And I can't remember who the, or Tim was producing and Tim goes, they have a brand new emulator two sitting there huh. for $9,000 yeah. <laughs> bit five and a quarter floppies piece of shit. Yeah. And I, yeah. I ended up buying one Hawk and I both bought them when, you know, in the Rufus days yeah. and it's sitting there. I go, why is that there? He goes, well, what we want to do is we want to sample you every part of you. And then we're going to play your part through the keyboard. And I just thought that was the ultimate blasphemy. Because it's not like we're doing it for uh, a Kenny G record. We're doing it for a Manhattan transfer record. And 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 and, and Miroslav, too. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. And you we're just sitting there looking at each other like, do you feel like we're like in a circus? Yeah. Yeah. I had to regress and, and tell that story. That story has not come out. <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate it for the, for the debut of the story. I mean, it's interesting. It just shows that technology attacks all of us equally. You know, nobody gets out alive from that stuff. Like, you know, when there's new shit to play with, everybody wants to play with it. Yeah, that's right. A new toy. Look at my new toy. Look at my new toy. It seems like whenever you had an opportunity, you would put a project together yourself. You are a band guy. As much of a session guy and a call guy as you are, you like to be in a band. You like to have your oh, own yeah. project. And ultimately, the thing that brought us to this conversation today is that you have a new band. You have SRT, which is this new project. Let's talk about that and just what that means to you, how it came together. The record is coming out. You're going to go on the road. Obviously, we all got sent to our rooms for a couple of years. So this is like, uh, Oh geez. Yeah. We all get to go back out in the world again. Pre COVID I had put a John J.R. Robinson band together, but it was kind of a Rufus Shocker clone band. Hmm. And I met a guy named Mitch town. He's a, a Hammond organ player who's in SRT. He's B the T from Omaha, but he's originally from Iowa. Hmm. And he's a lot like Joey or Jimmy but a little bit more modern vibe and um, excuse me. And um, I said, okay, let's, let's do this. He goes, and we got a club in Omaha called the jewel uh, owned by a guy named Brian McKenna, who is now our manager. And it's a beautiful club, man. It's just, it sits right in the heart of the Marriott in Omaha. And it's, it's one of the best clubs I've ever played. Hmm. And um, Brian just takes care of you. So we started this, this thing where, uh, I'm going to put together a six piece band with this beautiful singer named Allison Nash, uh, who could nail all the Whitney nail, all the Shaka, nail, the pointers, nail, the Michael, uh, so nail is it, all the stuff. it's to play. It's the songs of your career. It's a band it was the songs. It was uh, the big songs of my career in two and two shows. And, and so I go, wow. And this was working. Yeah. So we sold out, we had swag sold out both shows. And I started to get a, a, an idea of a run. Mitch did a whole PR campaign of 30 days of JR and blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, okay, I don't even want to watch this. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff there, but uh, it, it came out great. But then I realized as all drummer band leaders do, 
uh, it's expensive to keep a band roll. <laughs> it's expensive. And how do you do that? And especially this is right at, uh, right at COVID. Yeah. And uh, so there was a lot of uh, negative negatives thrown at that, even though we did well. So at that same time, Mitch goes, would you want to do a trio record? And I go, well, I've always wanted to do a trio record. I yeah. grew up in trios, yeah. and, but he goes, no, an organ trio. And I go, let me think about that for a second. So as time rolled on, he and I started conversing and uh, I go, we got to get a right guitar player. We got to get the right guitar player. And so we went through all, so I go, let's get George Benson. Yeah. Nah, now nah, let's go. And so we started going down this list and of all, just, you know, I had 25 guys on this yeah. list. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I, uh, I remembered, I, I played with this guy, Andrew Sinewick and Andrew Sinewick is a university of Miami guy, a bit younger and a good looking kid. And he plays a lot like George meets Jeff Beck and yeah. everything in between. And, but his, he's got his own style and I'm going, wow, this is very cool. So we brought him in and then we all started writing and, uh, we came up with some really good stuff. So we went in and then I got COVID. Mm-hmm. And we were our, our, were booked to go in, and and I, I was coming off COVID when we cut this record. Huh. So you, I, I can feel a bit of a huffiest huffiness from me, uh, and and not being in the best of shape at that point. But uh, it still is smoking. So that record is done. Steve Sykes uh, recorded it. Then and uh, since then we've gone in with uh, Don Lombardi from Drum Channel and recorded three new tunes with mm-hmm. video full video mind you we also played uh, the dw 50th anniversary party and and played a medium length set there so what's happened now is we are with be natural uh chris mees out of new york yep great agency and um i'm the md for the guitar center foundation that's coming up in a week and a half yeah and i brought srt the two guys in Plus, I'm plugging in other guys, including Tom Scott, yep. who's my buddy. And we're going to do uh, like the first third of this concert. But then we go to uh, Billboard Live in Osaka, uh, Yokohama, yeah. and Tokyo in June. And then July, we're at uh, Birdland. Uh, I think it's the 18th through the whatever uh, five straight days of that is, July 18th. And with Tom, right? Is Tom doing that? I'm, I'm bringing Tom in. Yeah. And Tom's never played Birdland, which is just ironic. He's yeah. played everywhere else in New York. Yeah. So I, this, this is all really meant to be. We've we've had uh, many uh, conversations with Tom and how we're going to blend him into our, our stuff. But it's, you know, it's basically a, a it's a high-powered organ trio with left-handed bass, left foot. And uh, then we bring Tom in. And then we're going to go up to Berkeley and do a seminar. We're going to play uh, that club in... Uh, Oh gosh, um, in New Hampshire. Anyway, it's a it's yeah. a beautiful run. So all, all the New Yorkers, I I, yeah. I want yeah. let me see you guys at Birdland because it's uh it's going to mean a lot for this trio. Uh, we we may have just secured a record deal. Uh, record deals are different these days. So you know, as you well know, honestly, so, it's hard to know what it means, and it doesn't. You know, labels don't do what they used to do, so it doesn't. I don't think anybody honestly knows. I, my, my sense of it is people don't really know. They, they they don't and uh, one one other aspect about SRT is yeah. like okay yeah what are you going to name this thing so I go well and I see drummers of my ilk going so and so I just said I want this thing equal it's yeah. like fucking equal pay yeah. and e- equal play you know so at SRT let's make it Cinewick Robinson in town yeah. and if we ever plug anybody in we'll just plug them in and yeah. says feature guests I yeah. don't care if it's 
Shaka or, or whomever we plug in. But we've also written, Andrew and I, this is a kind of a fun story, and yeah. I know we're probably wrapping up here, yeah. but Andrew and I played on Bullet Train, mm. uh, that movie, and we played Staying Alive. And we did a really hip version of Staying Alive on in the film. Yeah. And so our management decided, and we decided to, let's do an SRT version of Staying Alive. And it's really funky and it's very jazzy, but it's still groovy. Yeah. And uh, I've called Jonah Nielsen from Dirty Loops. Mm. Oh, yeah. I've got him doing a second version with his vocals on it. And it's going to be like, whoa, it's it's a lot of fun, you know, but it's, that's the beauty about this, about this SRT thing. I've scored uh, three films now. I'm really, really like that world too. Yeah. This yeah. band can score a film. We, yeah. We, nothing we can't do that's why i'm plugging them into this guitar center thing also right it's like you have your now you have your own rhythm section that can travel and you have your rapport and your sound together i mean that, that's kind of interestingly because you named it srt this question maybe isn't quite as i don't know at the front of of people's minds but i think what happens with drummer-led bands is the question becomes what role do the drums play in a drummer-led band are we going to see flashy drumming or are we going to hear a band play and even though you made it a co-op band in the name it, you know it's a cooperative everybody's build equally it's still likely that the story that's leading when you walk through the door is your story so the question maybe becomes how do you think about what role you should be playing in this band like do you you know are you trying to make sure that drummers are getting what they came for or are you just sitting back and saying no that's about the music it's not about the drums or is it both you know interesting question first of all you know i've been in a, in a fucking cage for 40 years uh, locked up playing sessions for you know and I, I and i and also if you look at doing drum clinics which i've done for every damn company mm -hmm. ever forever yeah and i always call that Wow, look at that. There's the monkey in the cage again. There he is. Look at him go. And then feed him a banana. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I don't care if the company's bag on me or not for yeah. saying that. Yeah. But it's true. And, uh, you know, they, they they a lot of people don't have any, you know, they used to put us in friggin' sweat boxes. Yeah. And they go, oh, you got to play, play, play. All right, now you're done. Now go play again. I am very respectful of the companies and very grateful to, to be able to playing their gear. But... Yes, there, this is a chance for me to stretch a little bit more, learning about stretching again, and and you know all the shit that we got got through it in the Berkeley days when you know, I had a band called Balls B A L Z and it was a Miles Davis clone band, and I and nobody came to see us. Yeah, you know, we maybe had fifteen people because we're playing some out shit, yeah. and you know so now I was never really a smooth jazz guy. Uh, I've played on probably more smooth jazz records than any drummer in the world. Uh, you know, Kenny's first record and Dave's first record and all Lorber's Lorber, yeah. stuff. And, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, Grover Washington was probably the first smooth jazz guy or Sonny Rollins with uh, St. Thomas. But if you go into what we're doing, yeah, yeah there may be something for the people that are just there yeah but i am playing some more drums but i'm not oh it's not like i'm gonna uh it's not like a, a a circus it's it's all conducive to the music yeah yeah you know there is a reality i think an economic reality that i've talked to a lot of musicians about particularly those who give clinics which is that if you show up and it may still be the case it's 
no fault of the music. It's just the way it is. If you show up in a given town and play a clinic and a gig, it's still likely that the clinic will do better business than the gig will because in the same way that if you go on the internet and look at the videos that get engagement, it's the tutorial videos and it's the technical videos and it's the, you know, sometimes when I'm like looking for something on how to do something on Pro Tools, I'll go on YouTube and find the Pro Tools, you know, how-to video and that video has got two million views and I know my song isn't going to get two million views, but the video on how to make the song gets two million views. There's still something, I think, about the economics of the business right now that is like, you know, the business is kind of supported by people who also want to be in the business, want to be doing the thing that that you're doing, which I suppose leads me to ask you the final question, which is a young, talented man from Iowa today who demonstrates proclivity and talent, has contemporary time. What advice would you give to a young musician today, knowing how difficult that world is? You know, I mean, what do you think is the future for young musicians? Do you have any sense of that? Yeah, that's a tough one. And um, I mean, you know, I have three sons and I have a 22 year old that lives with me full time here and he's a great musician. Yeah. But but again, he's he's still questioning things. Yeah. Still questioning things. And, you know, I'm going, really, shit, I was gone when I was 18. I couldn't wait to get, I was Speedy Gonzalez. But I would say if you're a young guy, if the, it's obvious that universities and colleges have jacked their prices up really too much, including my alma mater. Yeah, It makes it difficult for a normal kid to go to college because it's so expensive. You know, and I know that Berkeley and uh, certain colleges have, have uh, scholarships Actually, and stuff. Yeah. But there is a lot of weird stuff that goes on with those scholarships. So uh, without getting, what's the word, depressed. Yeah, I don't want to wrap it up on a dark note. I know that's... No, no, no. But um, I I mean, if, 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 if one has the talent, the talent will always shine through. Always. It always will. Because how did you get that talent? You either, you were born with this talent. It just didn't happen. I mean, of course, you know, your parents could have just... No, no, no. Play that scale. No, no. You know, know, and that sort of thing. But that's not where that talent came from. Yeah. That talents that you were born with that talent. So you need to figure out how to use that talent. And of course, there's, you know, there's guys that are, uh, you know, we're doing what we're doing and you are using your multiple talents to do multiple things. I always say to drummers or musicians <laughs> yeah. too, but mostly we've got 10 fingers yeah. and each one of these, let's try to do something different with all 10, <laughs> 10 of these fingers, yeah. like whatever it is. Right. Write, write a song. Yeah. Like Quincy always said every day, have a pad and a pencil and write an idea down. Or if you're playing, like I got a keyboard down here, yeah. you're playing, play something. Uh, and if you hit a wall, stop, yeah. save it, mark it, move on. Then you go, oh shit, maybe in a three months, I, I remember that idea I had or this drumming idea. Or I remember this guy named Billy. He's a really good guitar player. And, and yeah. uh, he goes, you ever want to get together? Oh, let me call Billy up. Yeah. And and uh, maybe think about what, what your heart really wants yeah. and just go after it. And, and you'll be surprised if you have an compl- incredible forward direction in, in your life nothing can stop you yeah that's a wonderful way to wrap it up 
J.R. Robinson, thank you so much for sharing some of the journey. I mean, I know we scratched the surface and we skipped a million things, but that's why the book is coming so people can hear all all of it when yeah. it happens. And um, yeah, I look forward to coming to see you in New York. I'll be there. And uh, yeah, let me know uh, which uh, which days you want to come and uh, and and drag some of those stars with you. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll <laughs> drag all my star friends with me. <laughs> I know, Leo. It's, it's absolutely an honor to do oh. Third Story, and uh, I, I'm really uh, grateful that you uh, chose me. There are people out there, and I confess that you're one of them, where you look under the hood and go, this is the soundtrack of my life, man. You know, this yeah. is, you, you just accompanied me through all of it. And I, and to be honest with you, I didn't even realize how much of it you were there for. So thank you. Leo, it's a pleasure. Hi, right, my brother. All right, thank take you. Care. Bye-bye. Later. Bye-bye. There he was, my friends, J.R. Robinson, having a good old contemporary time. I'll be back again in your headspace with another deep dive before you know it. Until then. You're really laying down the funk on that track. I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.